into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs? You kidding me? I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Hello? You play to win the game. They're down to the 20. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the all-time shockers. Hi, everyone. I'm Mitch Goldich, and welcome to episode 18 of my very creatively named Mitch Goldich podcast. I am back with another Olympics podcast. Last week, I spoke to Hannah Kaiser of Deadspin about both of us covering our first Olympics. Today, I'm talking to Jeff Passan of Yahoo. Most of you probably know Jeff for his baseball coverage, so I wanted to bring him on and talk about how he managed to prep for the Olympics and cover them while also balancing his baseball coverage, because I know he's a very busy guy, especially uh, this time of year in an Olympic year. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music to get both of those episodes. And also, lastly, lots of you know by now about my new-ish podcast about food, appropriately enough, called Mitch Eats Food. I have two episodes about a couple incredible meals that I had in Korea. So when you're done subscribing to this one, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to Mitch Eats Food, which is available wherever you listen to this one. And it's the perfect listen for once you're done this, and then you can go back and check out all of those. So uh, subscribe here, subscribe to Mitch Eats Food. And now that's enough begging out of me. Let's bring in Jeff Passan for the podcast. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? I'm doing great, Mitch. How are you? I'm good. Thanks a lot for making the time here. I know that you are as busy as anybody uh, for a baseball writer <laughs> to roll right from the Olympics into spring training. Can you tell us a little bit about your travel schedule and, and what your life has looked like since you got home from Korea? May I first give a shout out to a baseball writer who has been uh, even busier than I am? You can give a shout uh, out because to anybody. I, yeah. Because I, I, like going from the Olympics to spring training, uh, like in the in the uh, in the in the annals of sports writing, like that's not an easy thing to do. Granted, we we sort of don't work for a living. But Chelsea Janes at the Washington Post uh, covered her first Olympics this year. I believe she went home for a day, uh, went down to uh, Washington Nationals camp, where she uh, is covering the team for the remainder of spring training. And then we'll be starting the season on a 10 day road trip. So I don't know, like I, I, I've it's like an unprecedented sports writer run of time on the road for her. So uh, she's a crazy person that I, I don't know if there's anything more to say than that. Uh, my 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 time has been uh, it's been good. You know, the three weeks in Korea, I had, I think, five days at home and. Uh, I'm in Phoenix now and have another day or two here, then four days of, uh, with the family and then down to Florida. And then what do you know? The season begins. So uh, it's it's Olympic years are very interesting. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And so uh, how many Olympics have you covered so far? That was my fourth. I started in 2010 in uh, my second son came along in 2012, so skipped London, and then I did uh, Sochi, Rio, and now Pyeongchang. Okay, so fourth overall, second winter. That I wasn't sure about. Because um, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, I think uh, a lot of times the Olympics, it's people hop in who 
cover other things, and then they also have the Olympics as a side interest. So I just didn't know if this is something, have you just always loved the Olympics? That idea to go cover the first one, how did you end up uh, being the guy who said, yeah, I want to go to Vancouver or, uh, you know, or, or, uh, or Rio or the next one? You know, how, uh, how long have you wanted to cover the Olympics? And, and I guess, how did that sort of start for, as being one of the things that you do? I'll be honest. I, I didn't have like this burning desire to cover the Olympics. I thought it was always a really cool thing for a sports writer to get to do. And I had heard that it's a really difficult thing for a sports writer to do because, uh, as as you know, now having been there, it's it's really, really long hours and uh, there's not a ton of downtime there. But uh, my doing so was, I think, as much a function of my employer as anything, because for a long time, uh, Yahoo Sports has really provide or really prided itself rather on Olympic coverage. And part of it, uh, I think, is the fact that our audience craves the Olympics. Um, you know, you look at uh, other other websites that are out there that that have more targeted niche audiences and something like the Olympics just might not have the appeal, but Yahoo has such a, uh, such a broad and, and massive audience and such a concentration in places where the Olympics are really popular and do well on TV. And so uh, for us, it was always seen as something where we could send a really large crew and, and cover the hell out of it and blow it out. And I think it was just a matter of Hey, we're looking for bodies. We're looking for for people who can tell good stories. Or are you interested in this? And it, it's a little daunting, frankly, because when you cover something for as long as I have baseball, which is like 14 years now, uh, th- there's a comfort there, and you know, not just when you walk into a clubhouse, who the people are, and they they generally know who you are, but you know the questions to ask. You know the stories to look out for. Uh, when you go into the Olympics and you just parachute in there and uh, you're, you're talking to these people who, who are living out their, their lifelong dreams and have been waiting four years for a single moment, it's almost like you're an interloper. And, and it makes you, I think, uh, report in a different way, and in a better way a lot of times because – at the Olympics, I'm much more likely and maybe willing to ask a stupid question just because I don't want to screw up the information and because I don't exactly know it. And so in some regards, uh, it's a drawback because you don't have the expertise that you might on something else. But in some regards, it's actually a benefit because uh, whereas, you know, after being on the baseball beat for years, I just might miss something because – my eyes aren't peeled or, or I, I'm not training myself to look out for it anymore. At the Olympics, I, I feel like even the smallest thing to me is still fascinating. Do you have an example of a stupid question that you ask somebody at the Olympics this time around or uh, <sighs> a situation like that? I think the entire time that I was up on uh, the alpine skiing mountain, I was asking stupid questions. And, and you know, I, I say that pejoratively. Like, they're not stupid questions. It's more of a, how does that work? What are you doing? 
why are you doing it this way? And I had never, I had never had Alpine skiing in my coverage portfolio before, uh, but we didn't send quite as many reporters as we have in the past. So in addition to, to doing the freestyle skiing and snowboarding, I was given Alpine this time around. And, it, you know, the, like, the wonder of the Winter Olympics to me is it, it, it's that it almost has to be seen to be believed in terms of just the scale. Uh, the, the, the mountains and, and the, the pitch of, of the downhill and, and the Super G, it's staggering. It really is. It's, it's scary. And uh, I, you know, I, I asked something as simple as, uh, at what point are you comfortable going down a mountain that's this steep? And and part of that I think is informed perhaps by my own biases and and my own horrific experience back as a senior at Syracuse when my roommate who was a snowboarder took me snowboarding uh, for the first time, and I'd never been on a hill before. Like I've you know I've water skied, I've wakeboarded. It was great. I, for some reason, even though I grew up in Cleveland where there's just snow everywhere, like going down at an angle was like a bugaboo for me. And I don't know if it got in my head or, or I don't know if like the axiom that you can't go snowboarding the first, you know, you're not going to snowboard the first time you go was true. But I was just horrendous. And I will I will never forget the feeling of being on the ground, just on my ass after wiping out hard. And these kids on the lift above me who could not have been like any older than eight years old. And I swear it sounded like Nelson Muntz from The Simpsons. And they were looking down at me and going, <laughs> like uh, just laughing at me. So I, I've had like this thing for years where going down mountains is scary. And, and that, you know, that prompts me to ask the question of people who do it. Uh, when was this not scary for you anymore? All right, so yeah, so you uh, touched on a few of the things I was going to bring up because one of the things I like to do on this podcast is uh, bring on reporters and ask some of the like nerdy questions about the process of reporting and planning your questions and preparation and things like that. And, and you talked all about how the Winter Olympics, it's tough when you don't necessarily have the expertise. So, uh, and, and part of the reason I wanted you on in particular is just because I think it's really fascinating how you were able to balance with such a busy time of year getting ready for the baseball season. And I think you wrote like one of the definitive pieces on the MLB offseason and the uh, hot stove that wasn't hot soon, like shortly before leaving for Korea. And then to hop right onto a plane and go cover some of these athletes for three weeks that uh, you maybe haven't necessarily paid attention to for the whole four years in between. So... Uh, I, I'm wondering a little bit, just what was your preparation like in the months, weeks, days leading up to Korea, as much or as little as it was? What kind of prep work did you do? You mentioned that you did have specific sports that were on your beat, uh, which I, I didn't know. So, you know, when did you find out what exactly your beat was? And then what was your work like trying to get ready for the trip? Uh, you know, I think I was told what I was covering probably four months in advance. And... Uh, the, the amount of preparation that was done in hindsight is uh, embarrassing and I probably should not be admitting to it because I, you know, I should be digging in and figuring out what the stories are. But part of uh, I, I think part of our MO at Yahoo a lot of times is write the star. So 
I knew I was going to be at Schifrin's races. I knew I was going to be at Vaughn's races. I knew I was going to be there for Sean White and for Chloe Kim. I knew I was going to be there for Lindsay Jacob Ellis. There were certain stories that I, I had a sense beforehand uh, of who I was going to be writing. The what, though, and, and that's the, the beauty of the Olympics to me, is that the what just unfolds before your very eyes. And the fact that I happened to get like the first five gold medals that the U.S. won uh, was kind of a gift to me because it's it's a pretty easy story to write that somebody wins a gold medal. Now, the, the challenge, of course, is doing it differently than everybody. And sometimes I succeeded at that and sometimes I failed at that. But uh, I think trying to write for that broader audience and and really really entertain them on something that neither they nor I really know a lot about is the biggest challenge. And so, uh, you know, you read everything you can and, and you hope you have a good enough grasp on the information. I, I've made a couple of sources through the years who I called up, you know, in the months leading up saying, Hey, who do I need to keep an eye out on? What are the stories here? And that was very helpful. But uh, in the end, they do tend to reveal themselves. And, I, you know, I was there to watch Lindsey Vaughn and Esther Ledechka goes down and, and wins a gold medal in the Super G. And, I, you know, I had no I, I had read something about Esther Ledechka. I had no idea, though, in that moment when she was at the top, who she was. And then I saw her face when she won. Uh, that race by one one hundredth of a second and and as her jaws dropped there immediately i think a lot of other people were thinking lindsey vaughn winning bronze is the story and i think nancy armor from usa today and i were the only two american reporters there to talk with esther ledeshka and i i think that was because that reaction right there i you know at the olympics you almost have to filter your your stories through what is going to play on TV because that's the only reference point that the audience has. They don't know who these athletes are. They don't know their stories. They know a lot of times what they're going to see on NBC. And in that case, NBC didn't show them a whole lot because they cut away from the race. But in the end, that almost became part of the legend of that, you know, of that race right there that uh, NBC's thought so little of her or knew so little about her that they didn't even bother showing the race and that they had declared Anna Veith uh, the gold medalist. So that happens and that you decide right away you want to write about Ledechka. What do you do next? You mentioned you were one of only two American journalists to go talk to her. Did you scrounge and try to find other people to talk to or try and read stuff online before you go ahead and file because that, uh, you know, to me, I'd be hitting Google hard if, uh, if something happened about somebody who all of a sudden, if you know, have like almost no background on, obviously talking to her helps being there helps, but what else did you do to turn that into a story that day, which I assume you're on some kind of a deadline. They expect something at, uh, you know, with, within a set amount of time. So what was, what was your plan after you see her face and then, you know, that's your story. What did you do next? First thing you do is Google her and, uh, you know, story pops up that she's a snowboarder. And I was like, oh, no way. No wonder she's so, you know, excited, shocked, stupefied by this. And once I saw that, uh, I, I lucked into, you know, her her coach, uh, who was American and coming through the mix zone. And other other reporters actually were around for that. They talked with her coach. 
Uh, and I don't know if they went back into the media room because they felt like they had to write Vaughn immediately and we're going to wait for Lebechka to go in there and do her press conference, which a lot of people did. They ended up, uh, you know, writing off of that. And her press conference was hysterical. The, you know, she didn't want to take her goggles off because she didn't have makeup on uh, because she wasn't expecting to win. So uh, I, I, I think that just trying to get and gather as much scene as I could uh, and, and really understand you know, who this person is. Uh, I saw the jacket that her coach was wearing and saw other people with the jacket and went up and talked with them. They happened to be like the tech and, and her ski coach as well. So I kind of lucked into that. Uh, and, and they were fantastic. And I knew I was going to be writing a story on this entirely improbable thing that had just happened. So I wanted to try and capture as many elements of the improbability as I could. And then did you have to also uh, write something about Lindsey Vaughn? I don't know if your editors were expecting that or wanted something on that. Were you able to just say, hey, this is my story for the day? I don't even know. Did you like did you have a, a quota where they expected you to file one thing a day or two things or anything like that? Like, did you did anyone else from Yahoo write the, hey, Lindsey Vaughn won a bronze medal story? No, that was in the can already. Pretty much before every event where there was a, even a possibility of an American meddling, uh, I would pre-write like six paragraph or so stories so that they could send out mobile alerts immediately. And we started doing that in uh, in Rio. Uh, You know, I had that with with swimmers. Pat Forty and I every night uh, would split up the duties on that. And at track, we would do the same thing. And those worked out well. And, and, you know, that sort of carried over into other sports, too. You know, I'll have like an instant gamer from pretty much every baseball playoff game that I cover. Um, and and I was planning on writing both Ledechka and Vaughn still afterward. But to, to me, Ledechka was the story that was going to carry the day. So uh, we, we spiked the, the Vaughn column and just focused the energies on Ledechka. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then so similarly, another story I wanted to ask you about, and this somehow just blew up and was like one of the biggest stories of the entire Olympics. I think looking at the traffic numbers on Sports Illustrated's website, one of the best stories we had was just the highlight of the uh, halfpipe skier. Uh, is it Elizabeth Swaney or Swaney? I'm not uh, Swaney. 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 Yeah. That's actually that's one of the weird things about being there and not seeing television is that sometimes the pronunciations of people's names I just missed from not having uh, NBC <laughs> to coach me through that. So Elizabeth Swaney, who became famous, the uh, skier represent. She's American, representing Hungary, and basically went down the halfpipe doing no tricks. Um, I think, again, that was another story where I thought you had one of the best. I, I read a lot of them. And uh, I think at first a lot of people were like, okay, what the hell's going on? And then you had one of the first stories that explained her background and her quest to reach the Olympics and sort of some of her reasoning. And correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe almost like defended her a little bit against some of the people who were kind of attacking her motives um, or yep. at least presented fairly, you know, if not outright defending. Um, but, you know, so h- how did that uh, come together? You see that. And then, um, you know, I think you had spoken to her father. So uh, could you also just walk me through what that day was like where you see that happen and then decide, OK, I have to I have to do something on this, too. That was an insane 36 hours. And, and one of the things that I pride myself on is the ability to have something newsy happen and turn around something substantive quickly. And I owe that to 
uh, Mike Fannin, my editor at the Kansas City Star, uh, you know, he hired me when I was 24 years old to cover baseball. I had never covered baseball before, and he hired me for a national job. And, uh, you know, back then, the Kansas City Star uh, just had uh, the the staff of ridiculous staffs. I mean, I would I would put us up against the Boston Globe back in its heyday. Uh, you know, Joe Posnanski and Jason Whitlock were columnists. Wright Thompson was takeout writer. Um Bob Dutton, a great baseball beat writer, uh, Blair Kirkhoff on colleges, Liz Merrill and Adam Teicher were the NFL writers, um, you know, Kent Babb uh, and, and Bill Ryder came on for stints. I mean, it was, you know, Sam Mellinger was on preps when I got there. Um, and, and he, to me, is one of the best local columnists in the country now. And Kevin Kaduk, uh, a, a very good friend of mine, uh, is the person who who really deserves a lot of credit for this. Now, uh, I, I was saying, you know, you work a lot at the Olympics and part of working a lot is that you don't get to sleep a lot. But there was not supposed to be very much going on that morning, like ski half pipe qualifiers. Uh, you know, I, I generally was not planning on covering that. So I woke up at, I think, 10 o'clock that morning, right around when the qualities were happening or, or right after they had happened. And I checked Slack and K-Duck and, and Jay Hart, who uh is an editor at yahoo and sort of was like the point man uh back in in playa vista in california for our olympic coverage uh had slacked me a message uh with a story by jason blevins from the denver post about what liz swaney was going to do and he had written it uh from from an interesting perspective you know you talked about you talked with a a a judge uh for skiing half pipe and he had talked with someone at fis about how she had essentially gamed the system in order to do this and the second that i read that i i knew this was going to be a big story because the ridiculousness of her run would be palpable it it is such like a visually arresting thing to see uh you know the the elite athletes uh, so so many of the women who do this as well as they do flying in the air you know doing back-to-back 1080s and then here's this woman who barely gets over the lip of the pipe like what the hell is she doing in the olympics and i was kicking myself for missing the actual run but truthfully that's probably the best thing that could have happened because I, I don't think I would have gone into nearly the depth. I think I would have seen this, said, holy shit, this is absolutely asinine, talked with her, and, and that, that's, a, that's an important part of the story, and then gone and written it. And I say it's an important part of the story because uh, the, you know, the first thing I do after I realize that I missed the run is say, okay, how do I contact her? Uh, I look up the Hungarian press attache and uh, email them and don't hear anything back. I, I look up her her LinkedIn. I you know I try and find any contact uh, information possible. And finally, I you know after uh, after doing that, I stumble upon her phone number and get in touch with her that way. And we set up a phone call. And I you know I'm sitting in this uh, in this dorm uh, that that served as my room for for the three weeks that we were there and uh i i remember i'm on the bed and i call her up and we're we're in this conversation and three minutes in already i'm just i'm stumped like i i've never heard somebody i, I don't even want to say like she was 
oblivious. It sounded to me at that time like she was oblivious, and it, and it was it wasn't like strident or anything like that either. It was just no apologies whatsoever. And I didn't go in there seeking an apology so much as I did trying to understand who she was and what motivated her. And we talked for like 35 minutes and I got off the phone. And I remember calling my, my friend Adam Kilgore from the Washington Post, uh, who I, I think is uh, as good as anybody out there and saying, I don't know what the hell I just did. Like I do not get this woman at all. I, I just like I don't understand how she can look at what she did from the perspective that she does. And so uh, we set something up the next morning to talk with her uh, at uh, at our hotel. Myself, uh, Evan Darty, and Vic Velasquez, who uh, are part of our video crew. We, well, you know, we wanted to get something on camera because, again, we, we knew that this was going to be a bigger and bigger story the more that people saw it. And, you know, afterward, they looked at me and said the same thing, like, what what's going on here? And it wasn't until I finally talked with her father and her mother uh, and, and working out the time differences there back, uh, you know, in the Bay Area was not an easy thing to do. You don't want to call these people in the middle of the night. You don't want to call them too early in the morning. Uh, I talked with them and I talked with a, a college friend of hers. Uh, and, and, you know, talked with a couple of other skiers that day, the, the women's, uh, finals were that day and the, uh, the men's qualifiers were that day that, that I started to understand that she's just different. She is just a different person. I don't know why she thinks how she does. Uh, I don't know what the, the motivation is there, but she is the type of person, uh, for whom, External opinion means nothing. Uh, and, and I say that and, and, and truly do believe it. She doesn't care what other people think. She had a goal from the time she was seven years old and saw Christy Yamaguchi at the Olympics that she wanted to be an Olympian. And nothing was going to stop her. She's a bright woman and you can say that she gained the system or that she took advantage of it. And I don't think you would be inaccurate in doing so. But when you have something that's a dream of yours in mind and it's on the scale of becoming an Olympian and you actually do it uh, like there was something to me that was was very noble about that. And I appreciated uh, that the, the size of this dream, which to any average person would be so outlandish and ridiculous that it wouldn't even register as a possibility never even occurred to her. She said, I'm going to be an Olympian and she became an Olympian. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I look at the way that she looks at life and, uh, in a way I'm almost jealous of it. Like it's, it's almost like ignorance equals bliss. And she had, uh, I, I would, argue the the most blissful couple of weeks of her life uh and and look people inside of the sport uh frown upon what she's doing and other olympians look at her and they say who is this really weird woman and what is she doing here but for her she walked around with a big smile on her face uh for the time that she was there and and that 
is something that I can absolutely respect. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of uh, mixed opinion. I think some people sure. saw it that way, and some people hated it. And uh, did did you get some of that blowback? I mean, I, I or did you not even pay attention? Because I'm sure you know on social media you're putting all your stories out there. Did you get caught up in sort of checking out what the response was to your story about her? Yeah, I mean, there were some people who said, "I, you know, I thank you for providing the perspective on why she did this," and some people saying, "I dislike her even more now," and I, I'm okay with that. Like, uh, you know, if I write a column where everybody, and I mean everybody, agrees, uh, I'm almost like, okay, what did I do wrong? And I'm not trying. I'm not. I'm not going for a mixture of opinion. That's that's not the imperative when I go out and write something. I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm not trying to to get people on my side or against me. I think it's just a natural thing when you have a mixture of opinion, you feel like uh, you put the perspective out there well. And I, I think that I did that with her. And, I, it, you know, the, the effort was to humanize her and, and make her more than this meme that she'd become. Mm-hmm. All right, so I want to switch gears a little bit because I know we've mentioned you are a baseball writer, and right now you're covering (laughs) spring training. Uh, If you scroll through your list of stories in your author archive on Yahoo, there's that whole stretch of Olympic stories for three weeks. And then mixed in there, there will be some some small things like source Eric Hosmer to be highest paid Padre ever (laughs) and stuff like that. So I have to ask – I mean, you must have, I guess, you're texting with sources. I, the whole thing just baffles me how you're able to break news on anything. I think you also, uh, I don't know if you were the first to break it, but the Rays twins trade. Uh, I saw that you were <laughs> tweeting about from Korea. And I remember that one uh, particularly because my uh, coworker, John Taylor, quote tweeted that and was like, how the hell are you breaking news? It's like next Tuesday over there. So I have to know, how much were you reading about baseball? How much were you texting sources actively or passively just people texting you, asking things, passing info along? I mean, I, I, I assume with the time difference, it was, you know, insane people in uh, back home in the States. So can you just give me a, a general idea of uh, how much you paid attention to the baseball media and how much baseball work you did to keep up with everything while you were also totally in this Olympics bubble. The first four nights that I was in South Korea, I got woken up in the middle of the night by sources calling. Uh, and they did not, baseball sources calling, and they did not realize that I was there. And I would pick up and groggily answer, hello. And they're like, are you asleep? I was like, yeah. They're like, why are you asleep? I'm like, I'm in Korea. <laughs> and and they, you know, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just, and it was fine. That eventually I learned uh, to to just shut off my phone at night because you really do need sleep at the Olympics, man. Like that's that's the thing in shortest supply there. And if I missed out on a story, which I did, uh, you know, I woke up to a text saying Darvish is signing with the Cubs, and I'm like, oh Jesus Christ, did I really miss that one? Uh, but it, you know, I I did not actively pursue. Uh, stories when I was there, but uh, sometimes they're just very nice people who are looking out for you and and give you a heads up on stuff. And a few of the times uh, that happened, and I was very appreciative of that because 
at, at Yahoo, we have to do quarterly goals. And uh, one of my quarterly goals this year was to break baseball news from South Korea. And that was uh, that was from uh, back in 2014 in Sochi when uh, I got a call from a source saying Mike Trout is signing an extension with the Angels. And I broke that uh, that initial story from there. So I'm like, if I can do it in in Russia, why not do it in Korea as well? And how about uh, just reading and keeping up with the general, not if, whether news or rumors or you know other things that were going on, or were you just kind of? Like... I, I think I'll, I'll t- you know there was not a ton of like I'll I'll swing by camps and be like oh you're here, like <laughs> there there were definitely transactions that I missed because the turnaround time was as quick as it was. Uh, I I didn't exactly have a time to catch up on some of those. I think my favorite story that i and it wasn't even a story it was a tweet my favorite thing that i had from korea though was somebody texted me saying uh you should go check out san diego police records esteban loiza uh is is running drugs and so i i think it was like one o'clock in the morning in korea when i tweeted that out uh about loiza getting arrested and uh being charged with having like more than 20 kilos or something like that uh or I, I don't even remember what the details were but that was a that was a fun one to uh to do from halfway across the world yeah so you were you actually uh you were looking into the police records from korea or you were just uh yeah in fact in fact i believe i had to vpn back into uh one of our one of our united states um networks in order to access the records because i don't i think they would not uh allow people from outside the country to look through those so uh someone had sent me the mugshot and uh, a couple of details on it saying look into this and so i had to go scouring through through arrest records to to go find that that is pretty amazing. That's of all the random <laughs> things in this life and business to be able to say that you uh, were looking into that story from Korea at that time <laughs> at, at God knows what hour of day. That's pretty unbelievable. Um, okay, so another thing on my list that I wanted to ask you about. You had a story on your very last day that kind of took off on Twitter about a cab driver and a conversation that you had with your, uh, with your cab driver in Seoul about baseball. Uh, could you first could you sort of explain the situation and what happened and then I'd love to just talk about uh, your reaction to the fact that so many people that I guess it struck a chord with so many people and that it took off a little bit so can you uh, sort of repeat the story first and then and then we'll talk about the reaction well the background of the story which I didn't include is kind of important because um, I I don't sleep on planes. I suck at it, and I hate that. And I really wish that I could sleep on planes. It's like one of those one of those talents uh, that I just was not born with. If I if I'm laying down on a bed, I can usually fall asleep within 60 seconds. But uh, if I'm on a plane, I can. So my flight was at 6:30 p.m. Seoul time, and I had wanted to go to Seoul for a night just to be there. I, in fact, I was planning, I was trying to plan like a, a Yahoo outing in Seoul. But the problem was the one day we were all free was like the Korean New Year. And I was like, oh my God, Korean New Year, that's going to be awesome. And it turns out Korean New Year, everyone goes and hangs out with their family and business is shut down. So 
uh, that got, you know, that got scuttled pretty early on. And uh, I, even though I had a flight at 6.30 p.m. the next day and could have gone from Pyeongchang, I, I was like, I'm going to take a day. I want to see Seoul. But uh, that day, it, it happened to be uh, the, the Parallel Giant Slalom Snowboard uh, Finals, men's and women's running concurrently. And Esther, Esther Ledechka goes out and wins gold. And Vic Wild, uh, the American who is competing for Russia and had moved there, was another story. So I ended up having like two columns to write. So, uh, you know, I'm writing these two columns. I finished uh, eventually around 1 a.m. Uh, or like tw- it was like 12:30 a.m. Uh, Korea time. And I'm like, do I go out? Do I go out? Do I go out? And I'm like, yes, I need to go out because the plan was that I was going to stay up really late that night, sleep really late the next day and stay up my entire flight and just get back on time uh, when I got back to Kansas City where I live. And so uh, at at one o'clock in the morning, I hail a cab and my friend Chico Harlan, who had uh, covered uh, Asia for The Washington Post and, and lived in Korea. Uh, gave me a neighborhood to go to. So I get out of the cab, and, and it just looks like any any street in a big city, right? It's just kind of kind of boring as I'm walking along. And then I'm like, you know what, let's just take a left. And I hook a left, and I go up, and it, it's like this new world that I'm entering. It's lively. There's street food everywhere. There's bars. I mean, this is what I was hoping for. And I just dip into a random bar, order a beer, And I'm drinking this beer and uh, a woman says, want a shot? And she hands me a shot. I'm like, "Okay." And so I take the shot and it turns out that she uh, she's from the U.S. And she's with a couple friends from the U.S. and one from uh, Korea. And they're like, you want to come hang with us for the night? And I'm like, yeah, why not? Uh, So we end up going to a club that night and we end up at a hookah lounge. And I, you know, we're out until like 530 in the morning. And the thing is. At 5.30 in the morning in Hongdae, which is the neighborhood that we were in in Seoul, there are next to no cabs. You know, they try and order me like the Korean equivalent of Uber and, uh, you know, we can't find the guy. So eventually we get a cab and the five of us pile into it. This pisses off the cab driver who has no desire to have four people in the backseat. So he and, and the Korean dude I was hanging with start like bickering back and forth and eventually they come to uh you know they come to this armistice where uh they'll take the you know he'll take the four of them home drop them off and and then take me back to my hotel so uh it's it's silent it's awkward it's uh like i i uh, for the first time i really felt like i was in a different country and being a really ugly American. And I hate doing that. Like, I do not want to be that guy. So they drop the four of them off. We say our goodbyes. And I'm sitting shotgun next to this guy. And I don't want to say a word because I think he's going to punch me in the face if I do. And he looks at me and he says, USA? I was like, yeah. And I pull up my, you know, Google Maps and I, I show him where Kansas City is. And I'm like, Flat. Uh, you know, I, I put my arm around trying to tell him that, like, it's, we're in the plains. I, I don't think he understands that. And I figure the conversation's going to end there. And then he looks at me and he goes, pro baseball? And I was like, did you just say pro baseball? He's like, pro baseball? I was like, yes, pro baseball. I write about baseball. 
How do you know about baseball? And he doesn't understand anything that I'm saying except the word baseball. And and meanwhile, it's I, 6 a.m. and you've had some beers and a <laughs> shot, and you're. <laughs> I can imagine the the shape you're both in. <laughs> I was I was doing a little better by that point. We had had like some chicken skewers while we were waiting for the cab, but uh, ne- nevertheless, uh, I, I'm trying to explain to him. Like I'm like. I, I wrote a book about baseball and I write about baseball and I, you know, I put my hand like a, like a pen and, and try to like write in the air saying right, baseball. And then he looks at me and he says, Randy Johnson. I was like, what the hell is going on here? Did you just say Randy Johnson? And, and he, and he, he says, Randy Johnson fastball. And, and I'm look, I'm 99.9% certain that he was talking about Randy Johnson throwing a fastball that exploded a bird. I, I, I truly believe that. And maybe it's because I want to believe that the random South Korean cab driver who was taking me back to my hotel had seen the video of Randy Johnson blowing up a bird in a spring training game with a fastball. Well, if there's and, one and baseball was... clip that should be exported worldwide <laughs> for everyone to know about, it's that. So, and, and after you know, after we do the Randy Johnson, he says Kurt Schilling, and and I'm just like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> and he says Sammy Sosa, and I pull up the picture of Sammy. Uh, I was looking for the picture of Sammy and I believe his wife in their cowboy gear, but instead I pulled up the picture of Sammy when he was dressed in pink and showed it to him. And he goes, Sammy Sosa. I was like, yeah, that's Sammy Sosa. Um, and you know, I think we get on to Ken Griffey Jr. Eventually. And I try to say, you know, Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, and now he doesn't know any of those guys. His, his points of reference are back from when Byung Hyun Kim pitched for the Arizona Diamondbacks and the games were broadcast in South Korea and uh, you know Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling were the stars on those 2001 Diamondbacks team uh, you know those early 2000 Diamondbacks teams so uh, the the ability to communicate without really communicating to uh, to have this universal language that was this sport it, it blew me away. And I thought people would appreciate that story, uh, just the way that it shows this giant world in which we live really is pretty tiny. And and that there are, are so many things out there that can bring us together and unite us, and that sports and, and even pro baseball is one of them. Um, and then, so I guess you weren't surprised then at what a, what an audience it had or how many people liked it. I mean, obviously you knew when you uh, went on a little tweet thread about it, you had to figure people would like it. But did anything about the reaction to it surprise you? Uh, it, it made me feel really good, actually. And I, the only thing that I was worried about was that the Wi-Fi on the plane where I was typing this up was so wonky that I did you know, I was worried I had like I, I had written like when I go on these tweet threads, I'll usually write them up beforehand so I can put them up. And so I'm not, you know, just stuck there for a while trying to come up with the right thing to say. Like I'll workshop it a little bit. And I was worried that I was going to like get stuck on six of 11 and that the, the you know, people were going to say, where's the last six? What are you doing? <laughs> uh, but 
thankfully the the Wi-Fi held up. I didn't realize until I landed the the way that it was resonating with people. But uh, you know, I got a lot of very nice DMs from people about it. Uh, and you know, even even yesterday, a couple of weeks later, I you know I people like faving it, and and there may have even been a retweet in there. And seeing seeing that pop up in the timeline, uh, it's it's pretty cool, man. It is, and and I. I, I think I I had a sense people were gonna like it. I probably didn't have a sense of just how much it was gonna resonate, though. And that's it's kind of the beauty of the internet, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, things really surprise you as as far as how uh, you know how much people enjoy it, and sometimes it frustrates the hell out of you where you think you've done something really good, and it's just like, meh. It, it, it's a very it's a very gratifying thing and a very humbling thing, and uh, uh, you know, social media is such an enormous part of our job these days that uh, sometimes you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, well, it was a it was a cool story, and I think you made the point at the end that it was it's got to be the perfect way to end the trip, and for you in particular, as you're crossing from one thing back into another and back into baseball, it's a really fitting ending uh, on on the whole trip and the you know as your season changes over. So it was pretty cool, and uh, I appreciate you uh, sharing some of the backstory. So we have all that too. That was uh, that was really cool to hear. And I made it through the whole flight and stayed up. So that was the important part. Oh, that was, yeah, that was my follow-up question. I'm jealous, by the way, that you had Wi-Fi on your plane. I don't want to be the uh, media guy complaining about travel and Wi-Fi, but I had no Wi-Fi <laughs> on either of my flights, which actually screwed me on the way there. That's another story. Oh. Um, I'm an Eagles fan, and I had bookmarked all of these Eagles win the Super Bowl stories because I was leaving the next day. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll just read all about the Eagles on the whole flight and, then, and also, uh, you know, prepare for my job on the Olympics too, I guess to some extent, and then I, I had nothing. So I'm very yeah. Jealous. You get a Whatever, ve- uh, veteran move there, Miss, just to open up all the tabs beforehand, man. You got to yeah, know that. That's probably what I should have done. I thought I was gonna have anyway. Whatever airline you were on, I'm uh, I'm jealous, but I won't uh, I won't <laughs> complain about mine on Twitter. I know people don't like that. Um, all just right. on your podcast, you're allowed to. It's your podcast. It's you're mine. And if anyone has made it 40, 45 minutes in, then they uh, clearly they want my <laughs> opinions about Wi-Fi and and uh, food and cold and all that. Anyway, so um, all right, I'm trying to think if I had an. I mean, that was really uh, it. I know that, like I've said, you're uh, you're a busy guy. So thanks for making some time and, and coming on. This was great. I guess uh, last thing. I mean. Overall, looking back at the experience, it sounds like it was another good one for you. Is this something you hope to keep doing? Plan on keeping doing? Uh, you know, do you think you're gonna you're gonna keep covering Olympics in the future? I'd love to. It's just a it's a challenge, you know. And and not that baseball writing isn't a challenge because there, you know, there are so many good people out there who do it. But it's a different kind of challenge. And you know, my favorite month to write baseball is October because after six months of not meaningless games, but of so many games that, that maybe you don't understand the meaning at the time, uh, you have these events that are just imbued with urgency. And, uh, you know, what that does to people and uh, the way that, that readers and fans react to it uh, is something that's special. And so I, I think that's almost even amplified during the Olympics when – You've had people working for four years to be great one time, and maybe they are, and they're a, a, an Olympic medalist forever, or 
maybe they just have a bad day. And either way, the stories that come out of that uh, are spectacular. And so to, to be there for something uh, that has that much meaning attached to it and that has the backdrop of, of this interesting sort of nationalism that goes on uh, during the Olympics. And, and that's always, uh, always sort of buttressed by uh, the politics of the world that are happening at the time. Uh, to me, I don't know if it's the perfect event, but uh, for a sports writer, it's about as close as it gets. Yeah, you, you mentioned the urgency of October and the World Series. It's incredible to imagine what if they only played the World Series once every four years, and then what would that be okay. like? Would, you know, that's called that's that's called the World Cup. Yeah, well, I guess there you go. And and <laughs> I think people get a little bit worked up about that too. I think that was kind of a, was kind of a big deal. That, yeah. Yeah, and that's only the most popular sporting event in the world. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. And uh, again, appreciate you making the time. Um, do you want to plug your on Twitter? And we didn't mention your book, which, by the way, I, I have read and enjoyed. The arm is really good. But do you want to plug your yourself, your Twitter handle, and anything else that you want people to read or check out? Yeah, go buy the arm. No one's doing that anymore. So I can use all the uh, copies sold that uh, I, I can get. And I'm on Twitter at Jeff Passan, J-E-F-F-P-A-S-S-A-N. And uh, yeah, not, not much, not much more of a social media presence outside of that. But uh, and not many, I promise, 11 tweet threads very often, just just on occasion. <laughs> right. It's a special occasion. All right. Well, thanks for that. I want to wish you good luck with the rest of your quarterly goals since you uh, crossed off the one. <laughs> and, uh, I, I won't uh, I don't need to pry and ask what the others are. But uh, but thanks. Uh, it was awesome reading your uh, your work from the Olympics and looking forward to following you along for the rest of baseball season. So thanks again. Thanks for having me, Mitch. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks again to Jeff for coming on. As a reminder, you can also follow me on Twitter at Mitch Goldich, M-I-T-C-H-G-O-L-D-I-C-H. You can also like my Facebook page. Just search Mitch Goldich on Facebook, where I post links to all of my podcasts and my articles and everything basically just once, a lot less than what I post on Twitter. Reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. You can also go back and listen to old episodes, including that one I taped with Hannah Kaiser just last week about both of us going to the Olympics for the first time. And if you're a baseball fan and got here because you're a fan of Jeff, you can also go back and find episodes with some people like Ben Lindbergh and Jason Stark and some other baseball writers. And they're not really time sensitive. I try to make sure that they hold up. They mostly are about how people do their jobs. So if you want to go back, you can go listen to those and I hope you enjoy them and subscribe. If you do enjoy it, make sure you leave me a rating and a review in iTunes. And then don't forget to check out Mitch Eats Food. That podcast is usually 10, 15-minute episodes, one meal at a time. I have two of them from Korea, which are, again, a perfect listen after this one. So why don't you go subscribe over there as well. Thanks, everyone, and I will talk to you again real soon.